Well, thank you. We've talked of the judgment of Christ and tonight, following his second coming, we look just very briefly to the book of Isaiah, the last three verses in the book. Isaiah 66, verses 22 through 24, as we talk about the kingdom of Christ. Isaiah 66, the last three verses of his book. You'll want to follow. We'll be examining the text of Isaiah's prophecy in the course of the message. Isaiah writes, For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath that all mankind will come to bow down before me says the Lord. Then they shall go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all mankind. Volumes and volumes have been written about the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of peace that Christ shall set up on earth following his coming for the saints at the rapture and his coming with his saints in judgment at the revelation, the second coming. Following that second coming, there will be the judgment of those who are alive at his coming and those of the dead of all ages. And then scripture says, he shall set up a kingdom on earth and shall reign in a restored earth, a new heaven and a new earth that shall be what it was when he created it the first time, perfect with no flaw, everything in its place, everything fitting together in absolute symmetry and beauty, everything that we desire, everything that the mind of God could comprehend will be provided for those who love him. Isaiah in the Old Testament, stands as the pinnacle of the Old Testament revelation. Isaiah corresponds not indirectly subject matter, though much of the subject matter overlaps with the book of Romans. We read in Romans how Paul, trying to answer the question of the Gentile uh, Christians in Rome, that how is it that if Israel has forfeited their position, how can they be restored? He asked the question, how was it that man in the first place ever did so foolish and stupid a thing as to turn away from God? And in both instances, Paul turns to the pages of Isaiah to find his answers. New Testament theology in its entirety is contained in capsule form in the book of Romans. And much that is Old Testament theology, the highest revelations the Old Testament has to offer exist here in the beautiful prophecy of Isaiah in many different forms. It is rather amazing to me with looking at the whole Word of God that when Isaiah comes to talk about the kingdom, he uses three short verses of Scripture, just a few sentences to talk about it. For you see from the first page of Isaiah's writing, from the first moment he prophesied, which was many years before this final page was written, he has been pointing toward this time. We see in Isaiah in different ways the king on his throne. When he is revealed in Isaiah chapter 6, he is righteous in all of his majesty. And then in chapter 7, 9, and 14, we see the servant of Jehovah as God comes to grips with the necessity that men must 
somehow be brought back to God and Jehovah himself becomes the suffering servant. We follow him through the judgment on the nations that surround Israel, through the temporary judgments of Israel, through the crucifixion to resurrection and final judgment on the earth. And finally, he comes to the moment that he has pointed toward all of his life and it seems as though he just passes it off with a few sentences. But how eloquent the Word of God is in that it never wastes a word. And what we find here in capsule form has filled whole sets of books as men have studied the Word of God in its entirety for the prophecies and the details of the millennial kingdom. And so with very simple eloquence, Isaiah tells us that the most magnificent thing about that kingdom is the fact that the real difference between it and any other existence will be the presence of the Lord. You know, Isaiah kind of had that problem, if it's a problem, and it's one I wish I could have more often. Isaiah had a hard time thinking about anything but the Lord. Isaiah does not go into details the way some of the scriptures do. John was enraptured with the Lord, but he noticed the streets that were made of gold and yet shining like crystal as he walked the heavenly streets. And, and there we have detail given, but when Isaiah comes to tell us about it, all he can think about is Jesus. And so in simple beauty we are told that his kingdom will be a kingdom that is universal. It will be a kingdom that is characterized by the absolute power that God will exercise in clear and unvarnished terms. All opposition will be silenced. The enemy will be in the pit. His last hurrah will have been over and he will be experiencing eternal judgment and there will be blessing unmixed with anything to take away from it as the absolute power of God reigns finally. His reign will be characterized by righteousness and justice, justice which speaks with words of mercy and mercy which acts in justice will be perfectly united and judgment in the pain of sin will all be behind. It will be a kingdom of peace. It will be a kingdom of joy that Isaiah tells us about. You know, men have always sought peace. Men of goodwill have their own ways of trying to discover peace. But you know, it almost invariably happens that men who love peace with all of their heart are very idealistic. They're very unrealistic about human nature. And so it is that following great wars, naive conquerors have sometimes rebuilt an enemy that rose again to wreak havoc in the world. And our efforts for peace have been maimed because we are not omnipotent. Neither have we all knowledge and neither do we have the know-how to bring it to pass. And I am convinced as human history has dictated that there will be no peace on earth until it comes on the terms of the Prince of Peace. But when that kingdom comes on his terms in that day, finally, because his terms are met, there shall be peace. Notice with me briefly. In verse 22 of Isaiah 66, here is what I have called permanent provision. Now John goes into detail about it. Paul hints at it and tries to explain some of it to us. 
But Isaiah says very simply and eloquently that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And the word used here for endure is a word for perpetuity. It will endure and shall never come to an end. It will endure and shall never age or tarnish or vanish. It shall endure and remain forever. Here indeed is permanent provision. You know, in the Old Testament concept of generations, it was vitally important to every family among Israel that that family name be preserved. That is why there was the Leveret Law in the Law of Moses, the law by which if a man's brother died leaving a childless wife, that man was to marry the wife and raise a family so that the name of his brother would not perish from the earth. The Jews had such a heightened concept of offspring their only hope for uh, continuing influence. It was deeply important to them that their generations not be cut off. And here a Jew trying to express the permanent provision that God will make in the kingdom age says their generation or their offspring and their name will endure forever. The Jew loved his good name and sought above all things to maintain that name before other men. We see that come to fruition in the New Testament era when all they cared about was what people saw and they went too far and they carried it too far. But the Jews through the Old Testament had a healthy concept of reputation and of remaining clean and spotless from the world. And so here the promise is that just as their generation will remain forever, just as their offspring will endure, so their name their reputation will be eternally secured. At this time, he speaks of a new heaven and a new earth. I remind you of the passage in Romans where Paul draws on the teaching of Isaiah. Romans 8, 19 to 22. The curse that is on nature will be lifted. Sometimes we don't pause to think about it, but all havoc has been wreaked on nature throughout all the ages of man because of man's sin. But in that day, the curse of nature will be lifted. Paul says, For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of God's sons. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. In Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 35 and verse 1, Isaiah says, The wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like beautiful plants. There will be no want. There will be no disease. The utopian desires of men of all ages that have gone awry as they tried to put the ideal into practice in a very imperfect world will be brought to fruition and will be realized in all of their fullness. As Isaiah said in chapter 54, verse 14, In righteousness you will be established. 
You will be far from oppression, for you will not fear, and from terror, for it will not come near you. And then as Isaiah points out, it is echoed by the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah 14, verse 16, where he says, Then it will come about that any who are left of the nations of the earth will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah says, as Zechariah does, that the Lord himself will abide there And can you imagine that in the place of His presence there can be anything but perfect and permanent provision? And then in verse 23, here are proper priorities. Isaiah, again in capsule form, uses symbolism from the Jewish methods of worship. Now, does Isaiah mean, as verse 23 seems to say, that we will celebrate the new moons and the Sabbath days that the Jews of old worshipped? I do not believe so. And I do not believe that for prophecy to be fulfilled, that is necessary. You see, the Jews in Isaiah's day had wandered from the worship of God. They had gotten away from the things God had prescribed for them. They had become very lax in doing the things they knew they ought to do. God had commanded that there be festivals and feasts before Him so that the people from generation to generation would continually be reminded of His presence and His goodness to them and His provision for them. But they'd gotten away from all of that. And what Isaiah is saying in his own mind is that in that day, all priorities will be straightened out and everything will be done exactly as God wants it to be done. There will be proper priorities. There will be the absolute continuance of worship. As he says, all mankind will come to bow before me. He doesn't say at each new moon and at each Sabbath. He says from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath. You know, I believe that's a beautiful picture of what it's going to be like if you know Jesus and you live with him in that kingdom. There will be a continuance of worship for from the dawn of that first day until the eons of eternity, we will never grow weary of worshiping and praising Him. God has said that this is the way to have the most out of life, to abide in a life of worship. Do you recall Joshua 1.8, which says, This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate therein day and night in order that you may observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then you shall make your way prosperous, and then you shall have good success. In Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 to 9, where admonitions are given for successful family life and for raising godly children, the law of Moses said, These words which I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets on your forehead and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. God had told us from the beginning that to abide in His Word, to abide in worship, to live for Him, to put Him first was the way to happiness, was the way to success, was the way to prosperity and peace. But in that kingdom, all of that shall be literally and universally fulfilled 
as the priorities of everyone who inhabit that place of beauty with him shall be centered on him and the desires of his part, his heart. Once it was possible, but now it is realized and it is a fact. And then notice in verse 24, not only the permanent provision of this kingdom, not only the proper priorities we shall all exercise when we finally dwell with him at peace in the kingdom. Here is perfect perception. You know, God has never quite been able to get it through to us, even those of us who love him, that sin pays in counterfeit coin. There is within us all in our old nature and in our flesh the idea that if it's fun, it must be wrong. And if it's wrong, it must be fun. And down inside, we get the idea from time to time, God just doesn't want us to have fun. There is no statement, there is no attitude that we have that could ever be further from the truth. Sin is not the plaything of men. It is the master of men. Sin is not a thing of delight. It is the scourge of the race. Sin is described in the Proverbs as clutching fire to your bosom, as self-destruction and suicide and insanity. It has never paid anybody what it promised. Go to those who have given their lives to it, who are burned out and ugly and ruined and old beyond their years and embittered and unable to enjoy life in any way whose families have been ruined. Go to the great cities and see the white slavery of young people who have left their homes because it was fun to be bad and discover there that sin is the same as injecting fatal poison into our system whenever we touch it. And in that day, finally, all of our understanding will be cleared and we will have proper and perfect perception of all that God has been trying to teach us all along. Isaiah says, They shall see or they shall look on the ruin of the enemies of God. To see in the Hebrew, remember that Hebrew has no abstract words or concepts. It's very concrete. You can lay your hands on every word in the language. To see is to understand, to get a grip on, and to know what it means. We shall perceive then the folly of sin. Sin was the old nature of all men. All men revolted against God in their own way and turned away from Him. And now, in this day, when we inhabit the kingdom with Him, sin will be abhorrent and repulsive to us as we see the final end of it. There will be no more seeing without understanding, but then we shall know fully. Jesus quotes this passage in Mark chapter 9. In Mark 9, 43 and 44, 46, 7 and 8, Jesus quotes this passage, verse 24, as to the punishment of the lost. Here Isaiah says, Their worms shall not die and their fire shall not be quenched. This is an awful picture. For you see, when human flesh dies as with all flesh, and is left to rot worms set up in the body and begin to feast. And in the ancient days when an unclaimed body was found, it was thrown into the fire. 
And here Isaiah says at that day it will be like that. The worms will be there. The fire will be there. But neither one will ever cease and there will be no relief and no deliverance forever and ever from that plight. Jesus in the passage I mentioned goes to it again and again in verse 43. He talks about them going into hell into unquenchable fire. In verse 44, he says their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. In verse 46, he says their worm dies not and their fire is not quenched. In verse 48, he says their worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. Jesus Christ was never one to waste words. He never repeated himself needlessly. He went to it over and over again because he wanted his hearers to know that it was a fact and it was true. It was not some scare tactic on the part of religionists to turn people to morality. Rather, it is a plea from the broken heart of the great God that men would turn from sin to the Savior and be saved and delivered from that punishment. Jesus over and again reminds us. I believe in that day one of the things Isaiah is expressing is that it will be revealed to us the magnitude of of what we've been delivered from and the awful horror that awaits those who disobey God. One more time, Isaiah holds before us the fate of the lost. Likewise, the book of Revelation in Revelation 21 verses 1 to 4 in Revelation 22 5 quotes from these last chapters of Isaiah. In these verses, it is quoted from chapter 60 and 65, and this passage in chapter 66 to describe both the fate of the wicked and the existence and the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. God ends this glorious capstone of the Old Testament with another warning. It is a warning not really to the wicked, for the book is addressed to his people. It is a warning to his people that those whom you know without Christ have more than a small problem. It is a warning to his people that those who do not know God, who live their lives without God, whether morally or immorally, evilly or in seeming goodness, those who do not know him will end in a place of indescribable and eternal punishment and separation from God. It is our motivation to reach out. It is the reason for which we have been left here. And it is noteworthy that is the prophet who had seen the majesty of God on the throne, who had seen the crucifixion and the resurrection who had seen God in all of His glory, could not close and lay down His pen without reminding the people of God of the fate of the godless. Oh, how God desires that men be saved. And it is a fact, and it is our duty to tell the world that everybody has the choice. It is one choice, not two, not many. There is one option and no more. And that is to come to Jesus Christ, asking Him to forgive, asking Him to save, asking Him to live within. Every man has the choice. It will be the kingdom 
or it will be the pit. It will be the place of glory and exaltation or the place of damnation and separation from God. The question that the Scripture leaves ringing tonight is this. Where will you be if you had to stand before God tonight? And where would those for whom God has made you accountable by virtue of your acquaintance and your friendship, your relationship, your love for them, where would they be if it happened today and Christ came to set up His kingdom? May we pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the glories that your word reveals. I thank you that you draw back the curtain occasionally and give us just a little glimpse of what it's going to be like. Oh, we know that, as Paul said, our eyes haven't seen and our ears have not heard, neither could our minds ever imagine what you've prepared for us. But Lord, you give us just a glimpse. You whet our appetite. You aggravate our thirst for you and your presence. Lord, I pray that as our eyes are dazzled by the glories that shall come, that our eyes will flow with the tears of grief for those who are lost. Lord, awaken within us a full awareness that every one of us every day is on a mission of eternal importance as we move among people who need you. Father, we're not worthy. We don't know everything we'd like to know and, and we don't feel capable to talk to people about you. But Lord, I pray that you'd help us to understand that all that matters is that we're available to you and that we're surrendered to you and that we're in your word and that we're talking and walking with you day by day and that we let you use us the way you want to. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here tonight who is lost, that you'll just explode the fact in their heart that they need Jesus and that there's no other solution. I pray that you will bring us all to a commitment that will send us forth on this world with a burden that will not wait, with a pain that will not leave, until we have seen those around us brought to Jesus. I thank you for what you're going to do. I pray in Jesus' name.